The idea that you need to follow your own goals and values and you need to achieve those goals and be motivated and have some individual agency, those are cultural ideas. Not everywhere do people think that their goals are going to be met. Western individualism in general, I think, if you're doing well as an individual, it gives you a lot of liberty, but it also makes people much more vulnerable because if they don't do well individually. There's not a network that takes care of them as much. First time occurrence of depression is no different across cultures, but second time depression is actually more common in Western cultures. That is because if you are depressed in individualist cultures, the scaffolding is gone. Hey guys, how you doing? Hope you're having a good week so far. My name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, and this is my podcast, Feel Better live more. Do you think that all emotions are universal? Do you think people are programmed to feel a certain way in specific situations? Or is there a clear distinction between what makes you feel angry, happy or sad compared to someone else? Well, today's guest is someone whose work I believe can help all of us make better connections in a fractured modern world. Batcha Mesquita is a social psychologist, an effective scientist, and a pioneer of cultural psychology. She's also a professor of psychology at the University of Leuven in Belgium, and in her groundbreaking book, Between Us, How Cultures Create Emotions, she suggests that emotions don't live within us, they actually arise between us. They are made, not innate. They form in response to social interactions and can differ dramatically across societies and cultures. That's not, of course, to deny that our emotions are authentic or to say that we don't feel them deeply. Rather, it's a way to acknowledge that not everyone will see the same situation in the same way. Now, we could probably all think of occasions where someone from another culture has perhaps responded unusually to us or where our own behaviour has been misunderstood. And in our conversation, Batya shares some personal examples, for example, how as a Dutch academic visiting America, she found her colleagues' culture of compliments uncomfortable and over-familiar compared to what she was used to. Now, Batya explains how it's not necessarily our language Although the words we choose to describe our feelings can, of course, be significant. Instead, she says that things like our culture, our heritage, our gender, our socioeconomic group, all influence how we interpret the world and what our emotional norms are in any given situation. We cover so many thought-provoking topics in our conversation, including what exactly emotions are and why anger, shame or pride might differ across cultures. We talk about parenting and what we can do to better understand and potentially influence our child's emotions. We also discuss the immigrant experience and how being raised with dual cultures might affect our own relationships and our approach to life. And we also cover how better understanding cultural differences could have a transformative effect on doctor-patient relationships. 
Now, I fell in love with Batch's book the moment I started reading it. I think her work is really, really important. The more we are able to connect with our fellow humans, instead of judging them, the happier and more harmonious the world is going to be. I really enjoyed my conversation with Batcher. I hope you enjoyed listening. Now, before we get started, a quick reminder that you can now listen to each episode of my podcast without any sponsor reads at all. It's only $3.99 per month, which I think is incredible value, under £1 per week. And it's a wonderful way to support the show and all the behind-the-scenes work that goes on to bringing you these powerful conversations. You can also get a 16% discount, 12 months for the price of 10, which works out at $39.99 if you pay upfront for the whole year. All you have to do is click on the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And just to be really clear, this podcast will continue to be free of charge each week for everyone. This subscription option is simply for those of you who would like to support the show and listen to ad-free episodes. And now, my conversation with Batcha Mosquito. I love it when you come across someone and their ideas and their research that really makes you think about the way you're living your life. It's it's really made me think about the way I parent. But one of the other things I, I really like is that it's helped give a language to certain things that I feel I've intuitively felt for a while about the world. And um, yeah, I appreciate you making the journey over. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I thought we'd start with something I once heard you say, which is when you moved to America, you found yourself out of sync with your US counterparts. What do you mean by that? You know, I think uh, I didn't, I didn't feel I fully understood how they responded. Um, and and let me give you some some examples. I mean, they're simple examples. They're not deep examples, but people were really excited about seeing me, and I felt like I was a little. Um, I was a little rough on the edges. I wasn't really excited back enough. I also didn't know if that was, you know, if if that was a way of doing. I just felt I wasn't, people were, were very generous and I didn't feel I was grateful enough or thankful enough. So there, there was something about, about it that at that point I didn't really under, understand. And then interestingly, when people were grateful to me or or praised me, I also didn't know how to respond. So so praise for me was hard to take, and I, I obviously didn't. I mean, it has to be reciprocated, I think, um, in a particular way in the United States, and I didn't. Um, and, and you basically, you have to sort of like it, go with it, um, accept it in, uh, you know, in, in acknowledgement, what I, what I, I was, it really um, made me embarrassed. So I looked yeah. at the floor and I said, uh, oh, I'm not that great. Or, you know, that's a little exaggerated. For, for a little bit of context, can you explain to us your background? You know, 
Where were you born? Where were your parents from? Because I think that will help contextualize yes, definitely. what happened when Def- you went to America. Definitely. Um, my, I was born in the Netherlands. Um, I grew up mostly, I was born in Amsterdam. I grew up in a place, Eindhoven, where my dad worked for Philips. I think that's what it's known for. Um, so I was thoroughly Dutch and the Dutch are known to be very forward. I mean, um, also, I think among in the UK, there's a different style of just saying what you mean, not making a big, um, you know, do act normal. You're good enough when you're when you're average. That that was a an expression my mom used. Uh, act act normal. Um, the Dutch are also direct in the sense that I don't think there is a lot of. Um, you know, uh, there is there isn't a lot of praise. It's you know when you don't hear criticism, then it's okay. So it's mm-hmm. a very it's a kind of a straightforward way of interacting and engaging with each other. Um, and you you tell people what's on your mind, um, and that's often what you don't like or what what doesn't sit well with you i mean you can also say this was nice or we have we have a good time together mostly but praising somebody or elevating somebody that's not part of the it's it's part of the Dutch repertoire of course you can do it you mm. can imagine but it's not what we usually do and so what i describe in the book is that i um you know it just didn't feel that it just wasn't what I expected to happen in interactions, and I felt like I didn't play my part of the of the script, or I didn't uh, yeah. make the steps of the dance correctly. Yeah, it, it's it's so interesting. Um, there, there's two particular incidents I remember from researching your work. I've been listening to you in interviews. I've been reading your book, and one particular incident was when I think you said you got to America and one of your friends you went to a shop with and is it that they asked the storekeeper, how are you? And you said, oh, do you know them? Yeah, I did, I did ask her that. And she said, no, she said, how are you? And the person said, um, oh, I'm doing great. What about you? And I thought this was you know, I I couldn't imagine that you would just do that to each other. It was completely over the top for me. Yeah. Now, I just actually had um, a joint lab meeting, we call it, with a with a Japanese colleague and her students. And one of the one of her students asked me, "Is that emotions? Isn't that just you know social norms? The ways you and." You know, there are many answers to that question, but one of the answers is people No, people really try to elicit different feelings in each other. So the feeling of being seen, being being made special at every time of the day and by, you know, by by anyone, Mm -hmm. basically, is a is a kind of social an an interaction goal that we don't have in the Netherlands, not in that way. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you say that, of course, as many different components to culture and our norms. I think the British also find that component of American culture different. Mm -hmm. You know, I think as you were saying, as you were describing that, how are you? You know, that um, 
you know, we might regard it here as over the top, mm-hmm. but I say that without judgment. I say that with an understanding mm-hmm. that actually different cultures are different. And I know your book, Between Us, how cultures create emotions mm-hmm. is really key here. We're going to get to all of that because I, I really think your work is going to help create more acceptance, empathy, and understanding of people who who see the world differently from us, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a key point. The mm-hmm. the other example I think is really powerful was when you invited some of your colleagues back to your house for dinner mm-hmm. and you thought things were going great until the end of the evening. So I wonder if you could share that story. Yeah, so, so at the end of the evening, um, they thanked me. And, you know, you could think what's wrong with thanking somebody, but I felt that as them taking distance. So I I really felt it was more than a collegial dinner party. I thought we were really about to become friends. It was intimate. We had a lot of fun. Um, And when they thanked me, that for me turned it into a a kind of a formal interaction. And so I was very disappointed that they thanked me because I thought that that was at the exclusion of, you know, feeling connected or feeling friends, Um, which goes to show you again that what we had at that point was was we were interacting at cross purposes, right? My, My purpose was to feel close and connected and their purpose was to somehow make me exclusive or to um, to acknowledge my special efforts into the evening. Yeah. You know, what's incredible, uh, Batia, hearing that is that actually you enjoy the evening, your colleagues enjoy the evening, but the way that enjoyment was expressed actually caused a bit of disharmony mm-hmm. unintentionally. So as mm-hmm. you say, your colleagues are just trying to say, hey, thanks so much. Appreciate the effort you've gone to. You know, you've had us around. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And so to them, they're thinking, they're in, the intention was we want to make Bachelor feel included. Mm-hmm. You, know, she, you know, she is a friend. She's just moved over. Whatever it might have been, the impact of their actions obviously was different though. And as I hear that, that is just one example of hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of things that are going on right now every single day across the world where people have the right intention, but the impact of that intention is completely different. So what's going on here? I mean, this is the heart of your work, really, isn't it? You know, How would you help us kind of put all that together? Well, all of that, I don't know if I can put together, but some of it is, I think that, you know, even though I agree with you that everybody wanted to be inclusive, uh, whatever that meant, and it meant different things for different people, I still think that in the moment, what was most important was different. And that's not, you know, that's not that the people who thanked me didn't want to become friends with me. So in in that sense, you're right. It's unintended misunderstandings. But it was a different um, emphasis on what was important in the moment. And what was important was that I had taken care of the food for them. And that was, a, that was greatly appreciated. And for me, it was important to, um, to underline and focus on the emerging friendship uh, or on how we had connected that evening. So I think 
if you if you talk about long-term purposes, they may have been similar. Mm. But short-term, I think what was what was salient in that situation may actually have been meaningfully different. That's not to say that, you know, when I say I when some of my friends read the book, um, they said, and I want to take back the many thank yous for dinners. <laughs> <laughs> that you've prepared for us both in North Carolina and in Brussels. So, um, you know, it's not that you can't communicate about it. And that, of course, is the hopeful message of the book, is that you can try to find out what is important for other people and you can communicate about it. Um, just like I have, I'm, I no longer take it as an offense when people thank me for dinner. I think, oh, they liked the food. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, there are ways in which you can, and this is a, in a way an innocuous example, and that's why it's interesting to give it because because even even though it was innocuous, the friendship resumes. Uh, you know, we got over it in that moment. You're right; it distanced us. What's interesting for me is that at that time when you had moved to America, you had already been studying the cultural difference of emotions. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't as if you weren't aware of this. And there's a, I think there's a peaceful phrase you use in the book. I think it speaks to this area, which was you were blindfolded by your culturally informed ideas about what emotions really were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that blows my mind because it's even with that knowledge the cultural imprint on us and how we think and how we feel is so big that you may have known it somewhere, but you, it didn't change anything. You still felt upset that they had thanked you. Yeah, and I would say that that really only... So I, I did my uh, my first research. Um, I did in the Netherlands with um, minority groups in the Netherlands, Turkish uh, labor migrants and, um, and Surinamese you know, they were, Suriname was a former colony of the Netherlands. Um, and, you know, it was really interesting. I did describe, I think, with some insight, what was different about their emotions. And I never looked at the Dutch emotions. I only took the Dutch emotions. I mean, I looked at them and I considered them a kind of the standard against which you um, you compare the other emotions. So I really was into the othering. And I don't think I was necessarily uh, negative about those cultures. I mean, I really tried to describe them, but that my own culture, my own emotions were uh, a topic that needed understanding and, and that they were cultures that came years later. Um, yeah. And really was helped by the fact that I encountered the differences every day in my everyday life. Yeah. One of the big ideas in your work, for me at least, is that there is no universal signature to emotions. And, and I want to just spend a bit of time here because I think I think many people will come to this podcast, whether they're listening or watching, with the idea that happiness is happiness, anger is anger, right? These are universal emotions that start off inside us and that we all feel them. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter where we're from, how we were raised, we feel the same things. It's not that accurate, is it? I don't think so. Um, 
You know, I, I agree with you that that's how most people, especially in the West, um, view emotions. And it's almost as if if you if you could look through the skull, you would see them there, you know, active or not active. And and it's uh, I don't know for for people who have seen the movie Inside Out with the little little characters there. They were always there. Sometimes they came in action, but they basically always did more or less the same. Um, now, I don't think of emotions as things, and I don't think it's it's really, that's really uh, a productive way of thinking about them. What happens when you have emotions is, let's take a child, a five-year-old child at the beach, Jane, a toddler, um, and her parents say, um, it's time to go now. And, and Jane is frustrated. She gets what we might call angry. And the parents say, um, uh, okay, Jane, I see you don't want to go. Let's play five more minutes and then we need to go. Now, Jane goes back to playing. And then after five minutes, when the parents are lucky, she comes with them. If they're not lucky, she has just learned that anger is actually a pretty productive emotion and she tries it again, right? Yeah. Or you have parents who say, um, Jane, that's no way of responding. Pack your stuff, um, you know, come with us immediately. And Jane learns that this is not very, that this is not very rewarding, that asserting yourself mm. and, and saying what you want is not rewarding. Also, the, the, the way anger evolves is very different in that case. And a third set of parents saying, um, you should be appreciative of what we're doing. And look, all the parents on the, on the beach, everybody, all the people on the beach, everybody's looking at us, how we raised you so poorly. Um, now, you could say that, that Jane's anger turns into something that would be closer to embarrassment. But what you can see is that this interaction goes very differently. Mm. Now, what I think emotions are, are more the interactions between people than just one point in the in in the narrative. And I think usually when we when we think of emotions, we we're, we're sort of well the the metaphors um, are doing really well in letting us think about an emotion as one thing in the in a point of time and always the same thing across different situations. So when I'm angry, anger, it's anger, it's anger. But is it anger? I mean, when I'm angry at politics, is that the same anger as when I'm angry at my child? Or is it the same angry anger as when I'm anger, angry at my boss or my partner? And I would say, no, what, we, what anger really is, if anger is really anything, yeah. is a category of events that we store and that somehow we connect in our brain, that we have stories to, to, um, to uh, rely on, and that when something happens, that at some point we say, this was anger. We say it for, for other people, we say it of ourselves, and that's not meaningless. I mean, calling it angry is, in our culture, comes with certain responses um, certain mm -hmm. connotations of the word, is it good or bad? Is it good or bad in your position? Certain next actions, uh, expected reactions of other people. 
Um, but I think that when when you when you think about emotions as these interactions between people, or at least the way an individual engages with their environment, you can also see that there are many ways in which that environment um, can respond or or afford the uh, the your emotion or or deny you the emotion mm-hmm. or punish you for it, and so that. You know that talking about universal emotions makes less sense. Yeah. Is language therefore, in many ways, problematic? Because you just describe a scenario where there's kind of three possible different sets of feelings and emotions, but we're labeling them all with that term anger, which in many cultures, certainly in the UK and I think in most Western cultures, anger is probably seen as a negative emotion. I think by and large, I guess a sportsman who's getting angry to G them up, it might be seen as positive in that setting. But I don't know, language, does that become quite limiting for us because it makes us think that they are all the same thing when they clearly can have different meanings? I mean, uh, language is... Uh, deceiving if you think that it really is a reflection of the reality. But language is organizing. So in that mm-hmm. way, you can say, as long as you know that language makes the categories that we, you know, it makes the categories. They're not, it doesn't reflect realities that are mm-hmm. already there. You can say, well, what anger does is point out the commonalities between those very different uh, interactions mm. or very different situations. Um, it also, it, it, it gives you a repertoire from which you can derive, um, you know, the next steps or the next, it gives you even a repertoire of interpreting things, right? The anger gives you the repertoire of um, when you think um, people are angry it gives you the repertoire of who has done something wrong to them, who has wronged them. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, what what were they entitled to, or what kind of ideal um, did get violated by somebody else? Who is the other person? So it gives you it gives you a, a lens to to judge events through um, a model to to look. Um, you know, a standard by which you perceive the world. So I, I don't think language is only problematic. Language also affords mm. ways of dealing with the re- reality. It organizes reality. Language is only confusing when you think that anger is in fact, because we have one word, it's one thing. Yeah. So that, I think, is the confusing part. Responding to your other part, um, Anger is not a good feeling in the sense that you think the world is not a good place when you're when you're angry, right? Mm-hmm. You, you're more deserving than what you're getting. But in a way, anger empowers because anger is in at least in in Western cultures, but I think in other cultures too. Um, anger p- anger situates you as a person who is. Well, first of all, who is entitled to something, to a yeah. better treatment, 
um, and who can demand that a better treatment is given to them. And in that sense, I think anger often has a positive, a pers- an angry person is, is often uh, evaluated as powerful. Yeah. I'm going to say something else. You can assume anger and people can deny it to you. So if you are angry and you, you take this emotion that potentially empowers you and other people say, not for you, you don't have the position to, to make these claims, then anger can backfire. So, for example, we've found in, in research that male CEOs um, get away with anger and, in fact, achieve quite a bit with anger, but that for female CEOs, it doesn't work the same, the same way. This is so interesting. So with male CEOs, if they get angry, it you know it that that emotion either either to them or to the people around them helps move things forward towards that male CEO's goal or desired outcomes. Yeah. But if a female expresses anger in the same way, it doesn't have that effect. It doesn't have that effect, or at least according to the last studies we've done. But what's what's interesting about that, and I, I think this kind of speaks to the underlying premise of your work, that it's the culture and the cultures that affect our emotions. I think a lot of women would would say, yeah, you know, we can't act in a certain way because if we act in that way, it's perceived as different mm-hmm. than if a guy acts like that. Yeah. So I think what's important is that what we call emotions are often claims about your position in the situation. So when I say Western anger, um, what I mean is that I claim I'm entitled and I tell you that I won't accept your behavior. Basically, I have to say I won't accept your behavior. But of course, your claim can be... um, can be accepted by others and they can give you, they can yield to you, they can give you what you want. Or they can say, you claiming this, you have no basis of claiming this. And you can be seen as a person who's claiming things that they're not entitled to. And so emotions are in this way, a constant negotiation of position. And of course, other parts of your positions play a role um, in there. So can you claim this position or are people going to challenge you? Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, for women, claiming anger is a, is, is a dangerous game because you claim, you claim a power position that um, people may not grant you. So how does your work then, or them hearing this part of our conversation, how does this apply let's say to this theoretical woman at the moment who has expressed anger in the past and it has not led to the desired outcome, she, let's say, is listening to this and going, okay, right, I get it now. I understand that. What can she now do based upon what she's learning? Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to Vivo Barefoot, one of today's sponsors. 
Now, I'm a huge fan of Vivo Barefoot shoes, and I've been wearing them for over 10 years now, well before they started supporting my podcast. And they really have had a huge impact on my own life, as well as that of my family, many of my friends, and a lot of my patients. Now, if you've heard this podcast before, you've probably heard me talk about Vivos, but have you given them a go yet? And if not, my question is, why not? Now, over the past week, I've actually bumped into many listeners of this show in the street. And yes, people have stopped me to talk about the content within the show, but quite a few of you this week have been talking to me about my shoes. And I think that's because spring is in the air. Many of us now want to move more because of the lighter mornings, the warmer temperatures. And if that is you, why not make this spring the time when you start to give these Vivos a try. Remember, it's completely risk-free to do so because they offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you just send them back for a full refund. And I have seen so many benefits over the years when people start wearing minimalist shoes like Vivos. I've seen improvements in back pain, hip pain, knee pain, foot pain, even things like plantar fasciitis. And Contrary to what you might initially think, most people find Vivos really, really comfortable. They are the only shoes that my wife and I wear. They are the only shoes that I'll get for my children. And if you go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more, they are giving 15% off as a one-time code to all of my podcast listeners. Terms and conditions do apply to get your 15% off code. All you have to do is go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. Athletic Greens are also sponsoring today's show. Now I get it. You already know that nutrition is important for your physical and mental well-being. And ideally, for sure, everybody would get all of their nutrition from real whole food. But I know from 21 years now of seeing patients that a lot of us struggle to consistently find the time to get the nutrition that we want. Busy schedules, poor sleep, too much stress, there's all kinds of reasons. That's why I'm a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1. One tasty scoop contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, prebiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. It helps support energy and focus, aids with gut health and digestion, and it also helps support a healthy immune system, something that is critical, especially at this time of year. Now, AG1 has been in my own life for over three years now, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. If you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs... I can highly recommend it. So for listeners of the show, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you can access a brand new special offer where they are offering my audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. Now, vitamin D is a crucial nutrient for our immune system. Many of us have suboptimal levels, especially at this time of year. So I think it's a really great offer to take advantage of. You can see all details of this special offer by going to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. That's, I mean, in many cases, women are 
That it was it was for a long time the emotion that women reported to have less than men. I don't know if that's still true. Mm. Um, so in many cases, you're learning history, and this is a learning history as a woman or as as uh, an African American in 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 the United States. Your learning history is what you can and cannot have as emotion. So many women were were sad or depressed or. Um, in 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 many cultures, I would say in general, anger is a less claiming what you're entitled to. Entitlement is a is in many is a is a Western concept. Individual entitlement is a Western concept. In many cultures, nobody claims entire entitlement. People um, are not going for individual needs or individual rights, but they're going for more for the for the. Um, benefits of the community for communal life, for communal mm. harmony. Um, they are, I mean, anger is a, an, anger, but also other emotions are, are interesting because they're always interacting with the kind of societal goals or relational goals that people have in a society. Yeah. And so in many cultures, anger actually doesn't happen a lot except for a kind of anger that's expressed and reported by very powerful people who defend the social norms. So you're an elderly and you're indignant, let's mm. say, that young people do not stick to the rules or are immoral. Um, so what you learn is the, the, the ways is to interpret situations in ways that mostly are consistent with what the culture yeah. affords. And it's a very complicated psychological process because you can you can see that individual women get backlash for having exactly that emotion that would move uh, that would, you know, that would lead to changes for men. And so what what are the ways? I mean, the ways are yeah, I mean, there is a whole field of research, of course, uh, on how to change, how, how to uh, achieve more equality for men and women. Yeah, one of the ways is have collective, um, collective emotions, not individual emotions. Um, collectively claiming a position that individuals can claim by the by the regular mm -hmm. emotional interactions. Um, politically. Um, claiming an emotion, uh, restructuring our world so that people get more used to women taking women or minorities taking another position. I mean, there there are other there are ways around it, mm -hmm. but I think in the interpersonal negotiation that happens often through emotions, through individual emotions. Um, you can't, yeah. the The effect of emotion doesn't stand on its own it's an it's a step in the relationship that always gets interpreted against the background of what people's position is and what their rights are what yeah. these social expectations are um yeah. well, let's just let's just really dive into this idea of where these emotions come from i really want to get this clear in my head so As I've already touched on, we think that emotions are inside us. Your book is called Between Us. So, you know, you're saying that emotions 
are actually between us more than they are potentially inside us. But is that the origin of where the emotion comes from? Is that what you're talking about? Because surely, no matter how you're raised, let's say something happens in your external environment, there's a change of some sort. So it's no longer neutral. It's no longer the status quo. Something changes. That is then going to you know, come from outside into me and create an experience. Mm -hmm. And because of that external situation, I'm now experiencing a certain emotion. First of all, do you agree with that? Um, secondly, where do we go wrong with our understanding of emotions, you know, and maybe talk about it through that lens? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not denying that people feel things when they have emotions, but I wonder if the the most important thing about emotions, I think, is that we interpret where we stand in our environment, what happens, mm -hmm. and how we can act, and and you know, and and what we call emotions. Um, usually have to do with situations that are not habitual, that are somewhat out of the ordinary, out of mm -hmm. the ordinary bad or out of the ordinary good. And so we need to figure out what to do to take advantage of our of the opportunities or to uh, make sure that we're not harmed um, in whatever way. Um, and so I think, I think emotions are for doing. Now, we often have, um, I mean, we have a body, we feel things, um, and, and I'm sure that there, you know, that the body does things in, even in terms of getting ready for next, for the next action. I mean, you need mm -hmm. to mobilize some resources to respond to, um, to events in the world that are out of the ordinary. Um, so there is, you know, what what it is ex what it is exactly that we feel. I I don't think, you know, what I don't think you always feel the emotion in the moment. Um, I think of this, but it's very a very not social example, but almost causing an accident, and you know, you don't feel anything. You move the steering wheel uh, really uh, abruptly. And then you start having these feelings of you, you feel your heart beating. And so it isn't always, I think many of our emotions are with a focus on the outside. I don't know that you need to say, oh, now I'm angry to feel ang anger, right? In, mm -hmm. in retrospect, you can say this was really ang angry or you can experience an interaction with somebody else as really angry. But I think... Psychology has made a caricature of what anger really is in the sense of anger is a face that is in one position and then you recognize it. No, I mean, things are happening between people and you gradually um, discover or, or unveil that this person is angry. Um, and the same for yourself, yeah. I think. You, you, you are annoyed, you're, you're working yourself up. And then what I would say is that in many cultures, and maybe even sometimes in our own, 
what we call emotions is not primarily defined by the feeling. So it's primarily defined by something happening in the in the outside. You are you are a bastard who is not treating me well. Do I need to feel that I'm angry? Mm. Um, you know, I am. I'm. That may not. You you are you are a kind person who is trying to understand what I'm saying. Do I need to feel that um, I'm great? Do I need to feel that I'm grateful? Mm. I don't think. I don't think it often works in that way. Yeah. I, I like this outside-in model. And certainly if I reflect on my own life over the past few years, one of the big changes that I feel has had an immeasurable impact on my happiness, my feelings of calm, uh, my contentedness, has been this deep knowledge that I get to choose my response and my emotions in any given situation. So, for example, someone could cut you up on a road or a motorway, and that outside event could lead to anger. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't believe they drove like that. They shouldn't be on the road. You know, whatever narrative, whatever story you want to tell yourself about that. But Certainly for myself, I've realized that I have the power of choice. Now, you know, sometimes it's harder than at other times, but I believe if you cultivate this skill, you work on it, you realize I don't need to generate the emotion of anger here. I can choose to look at the situation from their point of view or go, oh, I wonder what's going on in their life. Damn, they must be under a lot of stress today or... You know, maybe that guy's got a pregnant wife in the passenger seat and trying to get to the hospital that I can't see, or he was up last night because his kid was unwell or whatever it might have been. And therefore, you know, the same external event is creating a different emotion inside me. How does that fit through the lens of your model? I think it's true that um, in the sense that you... I don't know if you can always decide how to feel, but there is certainly a big part that you can do by um, by taking other perspectives, by uh, focusing on other situations. Now, of course, the constraints are... So I completely agree with that in the sense that it isn't some some force of nature that comes up and that has to be expressed and, you know, that <laughs> everything out of the way, here comes my anger. So in that sense, and, you know, we know that that's true for anger, that's true for sadness. We, c we can work on our emotions and of seeing other perspectives mm. and work towards them. Um, of course, we can only do that to the extent that our perspective taking is free. And so, mm. and what I mean by that is that in some cultures, the um, consequence in um, some more tighter cultures, my um, my colleague Michelle Gelfant would say, the consequences are more scripted. So. If there is an event, if somebody if somebody took advantage of you on the road and other people were there to see it, your honor may be um, at stake. Mm -hmm. And if other people see it, 
you cannot just deny your honor. That's a, that's a serious event in the environment. I mean, people will take mm -hmm. you less seriously and you will lose honor unless you act in anger. Whether you need to feel that anger is a, you know, is a, is a completely different. So the choice of feeling, um, in principle, I think there is no, there's no biological big force. Mm -hmm. There's a cultural, there's a, there is sometimes a cultural and a social force. And of course, in the same way, there's some, sometimes a force that you can try to escape, yeah. but there's sometimes a force of your own history, right? I, yeah. I, that example you just used there, I, I found really interesting. This idea that if people saw it and you're in a culture where honor is really, really important, well, yeah, your culture then is going to determine what emotion you feel. Mm -hmm. That's a really great example you just used. So in many ways, I think what you're saying is that the emotions we feel tend to be what our culture values. Yes, I think so. Uh, on the whole, more than not. I yeah. mean, it's not that we are, we're all, um, you know, cultural robots and we do exactly what our culture values. Yeah. But I do think that what is rewarding to feel, and we talked about that, what is socially rewarding to feel plays a role. Um, and you, I mean, cultures change, people can come together about what is important and not important. This idea that you can regulate your uh, emotion, your anger and still your road rage and still be a man uh, yeah. is, uh, is, is emerging. So it's, you know, you're, you're contributing to a different look on those phenomena. And so that happens. It's not completely so emotions, I would say emotions can be constructed, but they're also socially constructed. And so it's very hard and, and it comes back to the to the anger view, or the, the anger story about, of women. Um, maybe it would be advantageous uh, if if women and minorities were sometimes ang angry for mm. for better reason than somebody cutting you off in traffic. Yeah. Um, but you you are not by yourself to determine what is effective and what is not. So I think I, I think I'm responding to this choice issue. If you have choice, yes, you can construct sure. your emotions, but not everybody has choice in the same way, or sometimes people need to work on their environment to 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 free to free themselves up. Yeah. Um when you started studying emotions what was really interesting for me, you I, you wrote how you were in the Netherlands and, and I know you briefly touched on it already to, to a certain degree, but there, there was something about it where I think you ended up landing on the big five that were considered universal, you know, anger, sadness, happiness, love, and shame. And you said with hindsight, there were other emotions there that, you know, maybe some of the minority groups in the Netherlands were expressing that, I don't know if you ignored them or they just didn't appear to be like real emotions mm -hmm. to you. And mm -hmm. if you were doing it again, you would have gone back and taken them seriously. I found that really interesting. And I think you wrote that actually 
the way the question was worded was inherently problematic. Um, I, I want to shortly get on to how I see that as a doctor when patients come in and we ask them certain things. But could you just speak about that? You know, when you were first um, doing the research, what were some of these emotions that came up from other groups that, you know, for whatever reason, you didn't decide to study at that time? Right. Well, what we found is that the Turkish, we, we said, uh, list as many emotions as you can. And it was really a pilot study to choose the emotion words that we thought the synonyms for anger and happiness and what yeah. have you uh, that were most commonly used. And many of our respondents, especially in, in the Turkish and the Surinamese group, um, listed what, what I consider behaviors like crying and laughing or, or, or yelling um, or fighting. Um, and I... Uh, and then there was a, a group of emotions that was uh, particularly common in the in the Turkish group, which was things as uh, missing or longing for, or um, so they they were they were really different. They were kind of relational relational words, and you know my, my first response then, and and I think you know, reinforced by my advisors at the time was, um, well, those people don't know exactly what emotions are. So let's choose the, the most uh, frequently used synonyms of that list that we had. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot from that research, but it did mean that I didn't look at what they thought was the most common uh, mm. emotion word. So, and, you know, in retrospect, I think, what well, what was my precise definition of emotion that allowed me to discard what they had given me? And there wasn't any, really. Um, it was just that those were not feelings. And so what, you know, what I say in retrospect is that, that going by what they considered an emotion might have led me to uh, down this path much earlier, uh, much faster to say why. So why, why do they think that crying and laughing and screaming, or yelling or helping was another one, um, are are emotions? Um, and and why do they why do they mention them more frequently than the than the words that I would think were the real emotion? I yeah. had no basis to to state that these were the real emotions. Because we'd think, wouldn't we, through the Western lens, certainly the lens which I've been taught at school here and, you know, living my life in the UK, you know, we'd call sadness the emotion and, you know, crying, which is mm -hmm. one of the things that you mentioned that, that some respondents said was their emotion. Mm -hmm. Crying is almost... It comes downstream, like we first feel sad, sad, and then we cry. Mm -hmm. So, so we look at it differently, don't mm -hmm. we? We don't mm -hmm. see crying as the emotion. Mm -hmm. We yeah. almost see that as a way. That's of, a behavior. It's yeah. a behavior. Yeah. So, but it has it has a, it has strong assumptions underlying that because it means, you know, the the force of nature is that comes from inside you is the sadness. And then it and then it looks for a way out, 
Yeah. And the way out is could be the crying. And we also acknowledge that you can sometimes uh, cry because, you know, you're you're overwhelmed by something good. Uh, you can cry in mm. in in happiness or but but that's sort of the that's the that is not the the essence of the behavior. And you could say you could say it the other way around. I mean, crying is the the behavior of being overwhelmed by whatever is in your environment, be it good or bad. And sometimes we infer from that a feeling of sadness. Yeah, or, or we have been conditioned, perhaps, by our parents, by our family, by our schoolmates, by the world around us, that crying means there's something wrong. Right. And it's so fascinating, isn't it, that yeah, what does come first? And I guess it depends... You know, I was almost showing my cultural bias when I even asked the question that, you know, it's the sadness that comes first. And then to get it out of us, you know, inside right. out, right. we need to cry. Right. But you've just beautifully demonstrated how it could be the other way. Yeah. And maybe a good thing to say is that when you think, and this is this is something that um, Wittgenstein and, uh, and my colleague, it's not original for me, my colleague Lisa Feldman Barrett say, but when kids learn to label their emotions they learn it from adults from their caregivers and all their caregivers can see is the outside so why does a caregiver say you seem sad well because the the child is crying or moping or you know anything that day or or not willing to do anything so so what the what the child how children learn their emotions, so to say, is not because the child has had some advanced course in psychology and can <laughs> look right through the child, um, but because the because the parent knows what has happened and the parents judges the child's behavior and then infers that the, this is sad, and and of course the the the, the parent the caregivers also uh, point out that this character in the in the book or in the movie was sad and they. You know, they may call themselves sad at some point. So the child gets all these different instances of sad. But in first instance, what's visible to how the label comes to be paired with the feeling is through the behavior. Because yeah. the child, the parent or the caregiver doesn't have access to the child's internal. Yeah, I mean, this area is one of huge fascination for me. I, I said right at the start that one of the things your book and the ideas within it has been doing for me is challenge my ideas of how I should parent, which I, I like. I think it's a good thing. I like to be challenged. I like thought-provoking ideas, which make me think and make me think, oh, maybe there's a different way. And that particular example, like if I play it out in my own life, let's say, I don't know, my daughter is, let's say, she's crying or she looks upset about something, then, as you say, I don't, I don't know really what's going on inside her. I can just see her outward expression. So I will then make probably a series of assumptions that, oh, I think that this has just happened. And because of that, her facial expression or action must mean that. So if mm -hmm. I say that... It's potentially problematic because, you know, sure, maybe it's giving 
um, it's helping her have a way of describing how she's feeling. Mm-hmm. Maybe, but that assumes I've got everything right there. Or maybe I'm then conditioning her to think that when A, B, and C happens, that's the emotion you're feeling, whereas it may not be the emotion she's feeling. So it makes me think, well, you know, I'm probably being a bit harsh on myself. I don't think I do this too much. Um, But it's more about asking her, well, how are you feeling? But again, right, there's a bias there, which I'm well aware of from reading your book, that it's a very Western reductionist model that emotions start within us and have to be expressed. Mm. So you can probably tell from the question, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm confused. I'm thinking about this a lot. Can you, I don't know, can you help me make sense of that example, please? It's a very good example, but I think I, I think I'm less negative about it than you are, because even though you may not know how she feels, you know what the situation means. And so what, what you're doing as a parent is to disambiguate what situations mean. Of course, you know, what you're doing in helping them is giving them a cultural perspective. Um, and that, on the one hand, is, is limiting because it's only one cultural perspective and there could have been many. On the other hand, it's going to help them being a member of their yeah. culture and being able to interact with other people and having relationships with other people. So I think you're right if you say that, um, when you say that um, you're disambiguating something that, you know, that you don't know if if that was her impression. In fact, I would say a parent's job is to help their children interpret the world. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know how old your daughter is. At some point, she may contribute her own her own interpretation. Um, she, she absolutely will contribute her own interpretation <laughs> okay. for sure. Yeah, but that's after having been socialized in many yeah. different situations. So I don't think I. You know, again, I think what you're finding against is an idea that what she really feels is something deep inside her, natural, and that you're imposing something. What I would say you're doing is co-create or co-construct mm. the emotion with her. And, you know, of course, you can do that in a very bad way, and we know that not all ways mm. are equal. But we also know that people who are socialized properly for their culture benefit. Mm. Um, and so that that being a culturally socialized person is is a good thing and that parents parents help and you have to in a way you can't uh you can't take in the culture without any help yeah. uh, of interpreting and then you as a parent also have the help of a language yeah of a cultural repertoire of cultural interpretations of what is the correct emotion under these circumstances mm. um that that idea of us needing to express the emotions inside of us is one that we kind of take for granted in Western culture. You know, if you keep the anger inside you, if you bottle it up, it will cause problems. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some pretty good research to support that. But you talk about certain cultures, when they feel anger, they don't express it and they don't seem to have any 
any any of the negative impacts on their health. I found that very very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't think it's so unlike you uh, deciding that you can ch- you can respond to somebody cutting you off in the highway in a different way than just anger, right? So. Mm. I think if your culture, of course, if you have the force of culture, uh, a culture that says um, you shouldn't feel angry, you should feel kind, you shouldn't feel sad, you should feel calm. I mean, all of those examples come from the literature. Um, People can rework their, they can start from the expression and work back to their emotion largely. So even people who who grieve and, you know, feel very upset, can work backwards toward a state of calm if that is obviously re- required by by the cultural environment. And it doesn't seem that um, when you, when you want to work back to calm, that it's harmful necessarily. So there is, this is a whole domain that I... Um, that I, I probably need to step several, uh, make several steps back, but... I think when you're convinced that anger is the right thing to have, you know, when that when you convince yourself and others are convinced that that is your authentic emotion, then what you may do when you can't express it uh, may just be a different process that than what you do when you think anger is not the right emotion to have in that situation, and you try to start looking um, from different perspective of you, or you try, as you say, you try to think about, um, you know, what, 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 what state of mind would the other person be in? What mm-hmm. prompted their behavior? How important is this? And in fact, when we interviewed um, Japanese respondents, a lot of Japanese respondents many years ago about uh, situations of offense, those were exactly the kinds of meaning making that they did. They tried to say, why would this, what would motivate this other person to be like that? I tried to understand them. What would, what would have motivated them to, to be offensive to me? How could, what could I have done to avoid this? What is my role? How can I help them? And another way of doing it is, is uh, a way um, that some meditation techniques use as well is seeing yourself as only one um one part of a big chain of events like one mm. small part in the world so looking at yourself from the outside instead of as as an agent as somebody is important so i think making meaning in a different way and trying to make make meaning in a way that accommodates the situational requirements for the emotion at that point actually works and that in many cultures, that is done because it's acknowledged that what should lead your emotions is the situation, the norm, the social norms, um, the behaviors that the, the norms for your particular role. Um, yeah. So what I want to say is that what this feeling of authenticity also has a feeling of of entitlement and reinforcement in it that subsequently makes it harder to suppress and then doesn't really suppress the feeling but suppresses the the behavior. Could you just clarify that last bit again for me? Yes. When you brought up authenticity. Yes, it's a really important one. So you can think of emotions as 
your real natural emotions. And many people in, and so emotions that come from the inside and that are, you know, that are the natural, what we talked about before. They're natural, they're yours, they need to be expressed or you need to do something with them. Um, many Westerners think of their emotions that way. Mm-hmm. We know that with those with those with that attitude on your feelings it's very hard to then suppress those feelings because it feels like you're going against your nature right okay so when you ask people who have those views or live in a culture that way to suppress their emotions they suppress their expression but their feelings if anything get more intense and they feel like they're betraying their authenticity, their mm. authentic emotions. And in fact, um, they are um, vulnerable to burnout and to it has real consequences when you think that way, when you feel strongly that way and you try to suppress it. That's a lot of work and it, and it takes a lot of... Mm. Why, uh, why it leads to burnout is a, is a question that I don't think we fully know. But one reason may be because you have these, because it's it's a lot of work, a lot yeah. of work to keep in in memory. You have these feelings, you have to work on something else. Um, now, it seems like um, people who don't view their feelings as so authentic, um, but who feel, who think that feelings should always be adjusted to what the situation requires, for whatever reason, if you ask them to be kind in a service job or if you ask them to suppress uh, their anger, they, first of all, they don't, they don't get burnout. They don't mm. get, uh, second, they seem to be able to suppress not just the expression, but they seem to change the emotion itself. And so what they're doing is they work back from what the situation requires to their feelings. And we don't know a lot about that process, but we we know that people are trying to find uh, just exactly the way you described, trying to find meaning in the situation that allows them to have these different emotions. Yeah, I, I love that. Super clear. And um, it, it's amazing just to think for a moment just how impactful culture is. And I guess that this where I'm where I'm coming to with this next point is that we're now living in in very multicultural societies. You know, certainly compared to probably a hundred years ago, but certainly a thousand, five thousand years ago, when there's probably more homogenous groups of people, you know, where people would have, I guess, similar values. Mm-hmm. That's been challenged for a lot of us all the time now because you know with with immigration around the world you know I'm from a family of Indian immigrants so Mm. and I I, want to talk about the immigrant experience at some point because it's challenging for many immigrants Uh, certainly I know many um, Indian immigrant families like you know certainly people like me born and brought up in the UK teenage years can be quite tricky now they can be for everyone for sure. But through my lens, you, you're brought up by two Indian parents at home who've got, you know, Indian culture. Mm-hmm. And then at school, you've got 
Western culture. And of course, you're trying to fit in. So, you know, you you try your best to fit in at school, you try your best to fit in at home, but there comes a point maybe when you're sort of 14 or 15 and you almost want to pretend that actually the home culture is not happening. You just want to be like your friends at school. <laughs> and there's almost like an identity crisis at some point where you know, you know, you don't quite know who you are. And I now don't see that as a negative thing. I've come to realize that actually, what a gift to have been exposed to two different cultures, mm -hmm. to understand the machinery and the workings and the values of two different cultures. So I, I very much hope at this point in my life, in my 40s, that I have I've I've been able to kind of almost choose a little bit and go, oh, I love this part about Western culture. I love this part about Indian culture. And presumably the way that my wife and I parent is almost like a hybrid. It's not, you know, completely traditional Western. It's not traditional Indian. It's probably like a hybrid. Mm. Does that make sense to you in the context of all the research that you've done? You know, I I have to say we know really little at this point about what happens in in the you know with the with people who are exposed to different cultures um what what we know it makes sense to me mm. um so we don't have the research yet on it we don't have that much research on it specifically on emotions what we know we know a lot about averages and what people do on average <laughs> Um, we don't know a lot of of the different ways in which I mean how the average splits up. So um, it's possible that some some people become hybrids. It's um, it's certainly also possible that some people choose between the two and live very se segregated lives in communities of origin. Um, we know that some people uh, turn away from their uh, original communities. Um, we don't really know at what costs that comes in which environment. So we have a lot of U.S. research or North American research where we find that people who can um, who can in engage in the two cultures are best off. We don't always find that in Europe, and um, and part of the reason may be that Europe isn't as welcoming to two identities. Can I share an experience from last week, which yeah. may just speak to that? And I don't know how relevant it is, but it certainly popped up in my mind as you were just saying that. So as we're having this conversation, the, the Football World Cup is going on, right? Huge interest all over the world, or the Soccer World Cup, depending on where yeah. you live, right? Yeah. And I was in a coffee shop a couple of weeks ago in the morning, and... A British chap, I say British because it's relevant to the story, popped in. And we got chatting. You know, I'm a chatty guy. We were just chatting a little bit. He said, Are you watching the World Cup? I said, Yeah, I'm watching the World Cup. I'm not managing to watch as much as I would have 10, 15 years ago, but I'm 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 watching what I can. And he then said, Who are you supporting? Um I said, Okay, well, you know, um, I you know, I sort okay. of said England. Yeah. And um I can't remember the exact ins and outs of it, but but essentially he said to me, oh, I've got there's someone I know who always 
is negative about Iran. He's Iranian, he grew up there, but he had to leave and he lives and works in the UK. And he's always talking negatively about Iran to me. But when I asked him who he's supporting in the World Cup, he said he's supporting Iran. And this guy was completely confused and he said it's ridiculous, you know, it's absolutely out of order. You know, he's here, he's working here. Um, he should be supporting England. And the old Rongan of five or 10 years ago would have just tried to get out of that conversation <laughs> as quickly as possible. I don't want to, I don't want conflict. I just, you know, I just want to enjoy my coffee. Hey, no worries. You, you crack on with your day, I crack on with my day. But um, for whatever reason, I decided to have a, you know, continue with him. And I said, okay, that's really interesting. Um, you know, why is it that it bothers you so much? He goes, well, no, you know, he's coming here and he, you know, he should be really grateful to, to the UK and he should be supporting England. And I said, hey, well, you know, I understand, you know, I'm, I'm hearing you, I understand your perspective, but what if he doesn't need to show his affiliation to the UK or England through the lens of which mm -hmm. football team he supports? Mm -hmm. Maybe... You know, I think he had a business and said, well, maybe he started a business here. He's employing people. He's contributing taxes here. He had to flee for, you know, whatever reason he had to get out of Iran. Um, you know, surely it's possible that he loves the UK and England and is happy to be here. But also maybe he's got some affiliation because all his ancestors were in Iran. It's a big moment that they're in the World Cup. Mm -hmm. I said, no, it's utterly ridiculous. He should absolutely be supporting England over Iran. And I, I said, okay. Um, and then he, then I said, well, I said, listen, you know, coming from an immigrant family, I'll tell you one thing I've noticed is that there's a bias I feel. And again, this is not the, the, the sort of thing I, I normally talk about, but I think it's relevant here. And I, I really would love your perspective on this. I said. What I've noticed is that in the UK, not with everyone, but there is a feeling that people who come from different countries here, they need to integrate and they need to uh, take on this kind of British identity. Mm -hmm. So what I've noticed when I've traveled or let's say go to France or Spain, where you see people who've emigrated from the UK and you see this in Spain, pockets of uh, English people there who don't speak a word of Spanish. They are English pubs with English names, mm -hmm. serving English foods. I've got friends who live in the French Alps now who moved from the UK. They live there for the mountains and they don't speak a word of French. And they go and drink in their English bars and they watch the English football. And again, I'm not criticizing. I'm just observing this. I said that to him and he goes, he said to me, well, listen, if I lived in Spain, I would literally be raving about Spain, about their food, about their culture. I said, okay, let me paint a hypothetical scenario for you. Imagine in 12 years time, imagine you've gone to Spain and you're living there for 12 years and it's the final of the World Cup and England are playing Spain. Who would you support? Mm -hmm. and, and his face just changed. He said, oh, Oh, definitely England. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, definitely England. I said, yeah. I said, hey mate, I, yeah, but fair enough. And I said, can you just see how potentially for this guy it's a similar thing? But he, he was a bit resistant. But I just found it. This, I mean, this literally happened in the last I don't know seven to mm -hmm. ten days. Yeah. And so it's I've been thinking about it a lot. And when yeah. you just said 
it's different in Europe than in America. Does any part of what I just said speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, so. In 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 Europe, um, the majority majority people from Europe, if I may, for the occasion, include the UK. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Think that um, that uh, adoption of the main culture has to go at the cost of the heritage culture, and and that is not necessarily true. I mean, we know that in many ways you can be part of two cultures. You can be what you said. You can be Indian at home and and English at school, uh, and people can do that. And we do see in in the in the domain of emotions, we do see that that people have more have emotions more like their heritage culture when they're at home, and more like their their um, the mainstream culture when they're at work. So that's definitely a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is that we that um, that my colleagues and I find that the more pressure there is to abandon your heritage culture the less willing people are, or the less, not willing, that's not the right word, but the less identify with the national culture. And the reason is, I think, that as much as you try, you never become, everybody has emotions and and is who they are by virtue of all the experiences they have had in their lives. And if if Mm -hmm. these experiences come from different culture, then just saying, you need to forget about a part of your life is psychologically unrealistic. People can, people learn from experience. And if those experiences are in different cultures, they learn from different experiences. But it also tells you that your kind of people is not desired, uh, is not part of the national culture. Mm -hmm. And so by saying that, people are going to withdraw. And so I I do think that, um, that European cultures you know, psychologically speaking, would do better accommodating multiple cultures if they want national identification, because it's impossible to forget a part of your life that happens somewhere else. Do you think America, because you've lived there for, is it 10 years you lived there for? Yeah, probably closer to 15. Yeah. 15, okay. Um, I've visited America on many occasions, but I, I've never lived there. Mm-hmm. My perception from the outside, at least, is that because, you know, it's it's immigrants who've come into America and mm-hmm. settled there and, you know, and built businesses and built lives and followed the American dream or whatever it might be. Do you think there's more acceptance there of this kind of dualistic culture? Like I, I don't know. As I say that, there's um, an exercise physiologist I follow on Twitter who's Spanish, but he lives and works in Colorado. And interestingly enough, he's been tweeting about the USA football games and the Spanish football mm-hmm. games, and he wants them both to progress and do well. Yeah. So, I mean, this is not a scientific study. This is just my observation that he obviously yeah. is he's Spanish, so he wants Spain to do well, but he, he lives and works in America. He wants America to do well as well. America is a big country and there are differences across regions. But I think in general, uh, can- Canadians are very outspoken about bi- biculturalism. I think in America, it's a little more accepted also than in Europe mm. that you can have those two identities. And yeah. and just for a fun story, my son and I both have 
Dutch citizenship and U.S. citizenship. And last Saturday, they played against each other. And of course. So we looked, we looked at each other and said, we can't lose tonight. So <laughs> that's another way of looking at it. But Where was your son born? My son was born in Amsterdam, but then we moved pretty quickly after we moved so to the U.S. So who did he support? We... we we were we we literally didn't support. I mean, we literally ah, you, said we can only win tonight. Well, I love that yeah. because it's like you don't have to yeah. pretend one of those doesn't exist. It's like I like them both. Yeah. They're both part of who yeah. we are. Yeah. So you know that's yeah. that's a nice way of looking at it. Um, as a doctor, right? I, I think I think your work has, I think it has relevance, real practical relevance for society at large and understanding and harmony and potentially it's never been more important than than today i agree yeah it, it really is i think very special and and what it can do for people in terms of helping them see the world differently i want to talk about education and teaching um but let's go to medicine right as a doctor and and i'm i'm drawn to this because if you know one of the things you, you you've mentioned before is that when you were designing questions to ask different groups what emotions they feel, you're wondering, well, is there a problem with the question? You know, is, is it going to be understood in the way that you want it to be understood? And I think of that when we're asking our patients about their symptoms. If you go to a Western medical school, you're taught how to ask questions, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say you're asking someone about their chest pain. You will ask them, is it dull or is it sharp? Is it tightening? Um, you, you know, we use these words to describe the pain that that I think a lot of people just won't understand. They won't resonate with, but we can come up with diagnoses and conclusions based upon that. Or there's another scenario where um, certain cultures have certain ways of expressing certain symptoms. Right? I know, for example, certain cultures don't have a word for depression, mm -hmm. or they don't have a word for the menopause. Right? Mm -hmm. So therefore. If, you, if you're brought up in a culture where you don't actually have a word for that thing, it's, I don't know, it's really mm -hmm. potentially confusing. And then I was just doing a bit of research into this in preparation for our talk. And um, I came across this, this little bit online where they, they, they said, due to Asian traditions of viewing the body and mind as unitary rather than dualistic, Asian patients often tend to focus more on physical discomforts rather than emotional symptoms, leading to an overrepresentation of somatic complaints. Mm -hmm. Now, I worked in a practice for a while where you would ask certain patients, you know, does it hurt here? Say, so, yeah. Does it hurt here? Yes. Does it hurt here? Yes. And people would say, look, I, I can't figure out what's going on. Like, you know, they're saying there's pain everywhere. There can't be pain everywhere. My perspective is maybe we're not asking the right questions in the right way, mm -hmm. or maybe that person's understanding based upon their culture is, I don't know, maybe if, if that particular person hasn't felt valued or validated at home, let's say, and they're in front of the doctor, they want to be taken seriously. So maybe they have got some emotional discomfort in their lives, but maybe you're not allowed to say that in that culture or... Maybe they've, with their experience, found that I, I have to say yes. I have to make sure the person knows I'm suffering. Do you know what I mean? I've, I've got yeah. to, I think, 
it, your work has implication for medicine as well. Is yeah, what I'm absolutely. Saying. I do think that you know, a doctor's a relationship between a doctor and a patient are often um, in many cultures that's an authority relationship, and it's it's possible that people say more yes or that mm. they're. Um, you know, that they're more, that that's what they think you expect. Um, but beyond that, I think they, you say certain people don't have, or cer certain cultures don't have a word for depression. But again, for depression, you can wonder if it's a thing. So what we call depression is a list of symptoms. And we, um, not to say that those symptoms don't, are not correlated or are not related in any way, but it's probably a lot of things we don't feel. We feel lack of energy, deregulation, low affect, have thoughts about about our value in the in the social world. What um, I have colleagues who describe the Western conception of depression as a mentalizing conception. So what we emphasize in, in our depression is how you feel about yourself in the world mm -hmm. or what your feelings are, blue, sad. I mean, there are yeah. these, these depression scales. And they say uh, in many cultures, um, depression is being somatized. Not saying that the original phenomenon is a mental, is a mental phenomenon, yeah. but saying that in this cluster of, of symptoms, Cultures, cultures can steer you or articulate more of one aspect of the of the phenomenon than of another, and that this is how it can appear to people. So they may not say they're depressed or they're devalued by their. They may honestly just feel pain everywhere and no motivation or no energy to do anything. That may just be the phenomenon that presents itself also for them so i think what both in in a way it's similar to emotions there are many things going on they're they're the, the person has a position in relationships with other people they other people treat them in a certain way they probably have some feelings um also but the point is what what do you focus on and what comes what is foregrounded in the yeah. in the symptoms yeah um, and I, yeah, and I think that's, you know, what is the narrative that they bring and how can you empower that narrative and do something with it? That's, that's going to be the question for, for medicine, I think. I mean, I find this really empowering. Like, isn't that the skill of a healthcare professional? Can I be with this person and really try and pick up Mm -hmm. on what they're saying like a lot of we know a lot of communication is non-verbal mm -hmm. yeah a, a lot of the time the way we try and diagnose it there's a kind of document called the phq9 in the uk which is used or certainly has been used to diagnose depression mm -hmm. depending on what your score is but the problem is is that the questionnaire requires the person who's reading it to understand what do you mean by those questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, as you say, you could medicalize someone. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with Johan Hari or not. He, he's written a few books. Um, he wrote a book a few years ago called Lost Connections. And the first time he came on the podcast, he, he shared a story in Cambodia. And I think this 
I, I, There's I, work in Cambodia, yeah. You've yeah, done work in Cambodia? No, no, I haven't. There is work. I there know is work, work yeah. Well, what was interesting about this is that there was, um, I think there was a scientist or a researcher out there at the time looking at depression. I think antidepressants yeah. were starting to be marketed in that country. This is my recollection of a conversation from a while ago. But essentially, there was a farmer in that country. He used to work in the wet rice fields. And I think there were landmines there. And one day he stepped on one, had a really bad accident. He had to have an artificial limb fitted. And then he would go back to work. And he was really struggling with his mood. He was stressed out. He was in physical pain. And what his community figured out was that, oh, he he can't, I think, contribute anymore because... In the wet, waterlogged rice fields, it's very uncomfortable with an artificial leg. Mm -hmm. And they thought, well, if he became a dairy farmer, he wouldn't need to get it wet. So they bought him a cow. And by buying him a cow, his symptoms went away. He mm -hmm. started to feel better. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and, and they, I think they said something like it was the cow, the, the cow was our antidepressant or mm -hmm. our anti-analgesic. Mm -hmm. and, and I found that so interesting. And I think I was thinking about that when I was reading your book because it's the same underlying concept, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it very much is. I I have I have a few responses. I don't know if they're if they're very coherent, but one is um that you can talk about feelings sometimes without talking about feelings. So you can talk about a person's position in the world without saying, how depressed are you? And that may give you more information. How was it, how was it, you know, what? how is it different your life now uh, from before when you still had your leg? What is hard for you? Um, do you think it will improve? I mean, one one part of depression is is not improving. So that was one thought, is that, you know, this idea that everybody has to say how sad and blue and hopeless they are is maybe not the way to mm. get at people, but you can still evaluate their their state. Yeah. The other is that one one reason that people do not use mental concepts sometimes is because it's because they relate to their social to their place in the social world and so feeling depressed also could be read as an accusation mm -hmm. like it's not good enough here and so in a way it has so i i think it's a combination of what people are used to do but also what is appropriate in the culture to focus on given that you don't want to accuse your environment of not treating you well enough. So it's, mm. in a way, there was this, there was this uh, culture, the Tahitians, um, where they didn't have a word for, for sad, but they were just tired. Mm. And in a way, it means that you don't have to complain about your circumstances. It's something of the body. Nobody has to feel obliged of anybody. So that was another thought that I have, that a lot of the language we have has social implications, yeah. and sometimes people do not want to implicate others. Yeah. And the, the third thought I had was um, that the amnesia is often with, with individual patients and that in many cultures, people don't do one-to-one -one 
conversations. People don't make decisions one one on one, and it may be better to include other people. And that's you know that's going to mm. be to include their family or to include, and that's of course a precarious one because sometimes it's the position in the family mm. that's not going well. But on the other hand, it's a very unnatural situation in many cultures to sit in front of an authority person who questions you about symptoms. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we, we need to take all these things into account as, as doctors, as healthcare professionals, when we're sitting across the table from someone and, and trying to elicit their story and trying to understand it. Of course, to be a good clinician, mm-hmm. We have to get good at this, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. whether we want the world to have changed as it is or not, it is changing it and is people changing. are moving. That That's just the way it is. So if you're going to be good at your job and help people, you've kind of got to understand this, don't you? Do you feel, you know, what you just said there about for some cultures, it's unnatural to sit one-on-one with someone to try and make a decision, like things are done together collectively. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that this is a gross overgeneralization, but I'm going to go with it anyway. <laughs> Do you feel that um, a lot of Western cultures that have emphasized the needs and desires of the individual, let's say America being the mm-hmm. kind of one extreme there, you know, mm-hmm. the American dream, I can do this, I don't need anyone. If I work hard and I push through, I can achieve anything I want, right? It's, it's about me and what I can do. That sort of individual, that kind of individualistic culture, do they have a certain view of feelings and emotions compared to more um, group orientated cultures where people do things together. It's about, as you were mentioning before, it's about not what I'm feeling, but what should I feel in the context of this situation? Yeah, I think so. I was interviewed by, um, by somebody for, for a podcast who was, um, her parents were uh, Chinese and she said, we, she, we talked about the experiment where people, look at a face and then the surround a face with what we would traditionally call an emotional expression and then people around uh, this one person also have expressions and so japanese in this experiment inferred it from all the faces and americans inferred it from just that face so how does john feel well look at john face john's face or look at all the faces in the room And she said to me, the Chinese interviewer, she said, this makes me feel so much better because I always felt um, non-agentic that I had to look at others to know what I felt about certain choices or or things. Uh, And she said, this is empowering to me because it just means that um, that I don't, maybe it's just, you know, the, the way we ask the question, how do I feel? How does everybody in the room feel? Has something to do with each other? And I won't say that John's face wasn't important for how people thought they felt, he felt, but the other faces were also important. So I think, yeah, looking at others to make decisions, uh, looking at others for what the feeling should be, 
um, isn't so uncommon. And, and maybe it's not so uncommon. Maybe we do more of it than we want to acknowledge. Yeah. But I mean, it's not, it, it, I, think, I think modern medicine also includes the partner now for important decisions, right? Yeah. But So it's just a matter of degree in some ways. Yeah. Um, but I think focusing on internal feelings and then talking to the one to the person who is supposed to have them is a very Western paradigm. Where you look inside and you see what's really there. Mm-hmm. That seems to me. I mean, my work doesn't go much outside um, the realm of emotions, but in general, that seems to me a very Western way of 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 mapping experiences. And you can say that experiences can be mapped also in um, in terms of what is happening in the world and what is happening between people, and in some ways that works for us too. Yeah. How how do you? I I can ask you how you feel, and you can say I'm depressed. I can also say how your relationships have been going, and you can say I've, you know, I, I haven't I haven't felt that things were so fun or good or I felt like I didn't fit in or um, I haven't been able to do the work I wanted to. I mean, it's possible to describe the world in a meaningful fashion. I mean, in a fashion that is meaningful to the individual and their environment without focusing on internal mental feelings. Yeah. And that may sometimes be a better way of communicating to people from other cultures. I was talking to somebody who works in Algeria with traumatized men. And he was telling me that um, the psychotherapeutic language for trauma is really hard in that honor culture. So mm. now you have to say that you're that you felt weak and powerless and that things that you don't feel like you're nervous and that you don't feel like you mm. can handle life and how does this mesh with masculinity and being a right person in the world mm-hmm. but of course you can uh, there again i think you can talk about how how things were before the event how things are now what things have become harder what they wish they were able to do if they felt better mm. rather than, you know, focusing on the weak feelings yeah. of not being able to sleep or focus. So there are many ways in which you can address experiences without using this mental yeah, lingo. I, I, I love that. And I, and I think I think this nuance that your work gives us and, and emphasizes is so important. Just take that last example. There, there's a big movement now to being more vulnerable, right? Particularly for men, you know, show your vulnerability. It's it's important. And I don't disagree with that, first yeah. of all. I, th- I think it is a good thing. But often there's only one narrative, right? So being vulnerable means that you have to express weakness and do this and do that. And what you beautifully articulated there is that but you can be vulnerable in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I think I think this has far-reaching implications because often we we particularly these days, you know, let's say on social media, we see a particular influencer saying something or doing something a particular way. 
we might feel, oh, that's the way I should be doing it. But it's like, well, maybe or maybe not. Maybe that way works for that person Mm -hmm. in the context of their upbringing and their culture. But maybe I can take that concept to go, no, I need to tweak that Mm -hmm. because that won't work for me and my mates and my family. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely that makes sense. And it's it's a language that fits in a larger social context or not and and yeah and and how does it fit also in the i mean being vulnerable fits nicely in this emancipated new world where (laughs) men and women are equal but you know you can't just transport that to algeria and uh, so i feel that we're we're way too self-assured about our language, you know, as professionals, as health professionals and mental health professionals, we're way too self, self-assured that our language, the language we use in our private lives, is the language that works in different cultures and is also describes the, the decontextualized um, reality. There yeah. is no decontextualized reality. No. Uh, yeah. I mean, one one thing that that springs to mind for me is, and maybe this this we can talk a little bit about how, you know, how different cultures might raise their kids. You know, I know shame, for example, is something that we don't think is a good thing in in Western culture, but it's something that is used in Asian families or certainly Chinese families. You've written about, which I find interesting. Before we get to that, I just want to share with you that, um, like Indian families. And I'm when I say Indian families, I don't mean every single Indian family. That's, you know, they're not homogenous groups, but everyone acts the same. But it's not uncommon that people will say, like people like my parents can be quite direct. Um, like if I'd been away to university for a few months and <laughs> medical school and, you know, been enjoying the good life for a bit and you, you come back for Christmas holidays, mum would say, what have you been doing? You look fat. You look awful. So it's really interesting. This, I think this really speaks to your work. That's words have been said, right, by an individual. How we interpret those words will depend on our culture. Absolutely. Right? So I know my mum means nothing by that apart from love. It's like she loves her son. It's like, what, what, what are you doing to your body, right? What are you doing? Whereas um, if that was said to somebody else, mm-hmm. That's, I don't know, one of my friends, for example, or whatever. You know, I'm not saying mum's done that, but um, it would be interpreted as rude. Yeah, it was literally what an American woman talked about, um, that her grandmother told her that she did, she shouldn't eat that much because she was fat. And it was, it was horrendously mm. shameful, um, but in a bad way. But I think that the big difference is, what consequences, what is the meaning of that yeah. in the relationship? So is it does it mean rejection or mm. does it mean sharing responsibility for your welfare? Yeah. And and I'm assuming that your mom just meant, you know, we're all we're we're all responsible. You're obviously ours. And yeah. we need to make sure that um that you're doing well. Um so in that within that relationship, it also is only done towards people from what I know of India and other Asian cultures to talk about gross uh, generalizations is that it's only done in the in the very close family mm. where you where the 
where we are really together. She wouldn't go up to her neighbor and say, "Yeah, you look fat." Yeah, true. Um, she, she wouldn't. No. Or if I had a friends come, yeah, they so that, she, she wouldn't she, she say wouldn't that say, either. Oh, you're looking really fat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, but she would to me or my brother. Yeah, yeah, um, or something equivalent like that. Yeah, and I mean, the way I understand it, it's part of trying trying to improve. Um, yeah. You know, the as, as a family, you try to improve and you help each other try to improve on your, you know, you're criticized, you're, you're self-critical, you're critical of your very close others so that we can work on it, so yeah. that we can improve. And that's what you've written about, haven't you, that certain, certain uh, cultures don't praise their kids, yeah. right? Now, this is really interesting because... I think that applies to me. You don't really get praise. Your your deficiencies are pointed out mm-hmm. regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, if you take a step back and go, well, what is the what is the value of this culture? Let's say for me, um, and I know you were. I think you were writing about Chinese mothers in the book with respect mm-hmm. to this, um, or certainly East Asian families. Mm-hmm. Again. You know, That's just where just a lot of the work has where been some of done. The research has been done. Yeah. But you say a lot of these, uh, a, a lot of families will not praise their kids. They'll point out deficiencies, right. and that actually serves a role. If the role mm-hmm. is like in a family like mine, educational excellence is the highest value. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they don't see the need to tell you what's going well. So no, this is you're not very good at this, but you're not very good at that. You're failing at that. Mm-hmm. Because that's then a um a motivation for you right. to to change something. But if you then try and bring that into something else, let's say when you get married, for example, you may feel, you may find very quickly that someone's got a completely different cultural blueprint. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I found it interesting. You kind of go, there's no it's not right or wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just different. Yeah. I I think, yeah, I mean, and, and in fact, um, getting criticism is in many cultures demotivating, right? It's it's interesting that um, when there, there is quite a bit of research that when, when American students get cr- criticism that they choose another topic, something that they feel good at. Mm. And it probably, it has to do with the relationship with, um, does it does it imply rejection? But it probably also has something to do with what you take the criticism to stand for or the failure to stand for. If you take it as just one point of improvement that I need to work on, um, then, then it's something to turn your mind and attention to. If you take it as a reflection of how good you are or how talented, then it's demotivating. And, and um, Carol Dweck, the psychologist, um, calls this an entitative, um, what does she call it? Mind, I think, in an incremental mind. Anyway, it's, you know, can you, do you think of yourself as, something to be worked on a project in process uh, in process progress so to say yeah. and um and you know and and so f- negative feedback helps you to focus on what needs to be done next or do you uh do you take it as i'm no good and there mm-hmm. are large cultural differences on that too and it may have something to do i don't know that there's research about that is you know what is the base of rejection if you are 
certain that cer- that's that some relationship will stay no matter what. I mean, your parents are going to be there for you. Mm-hmm. It's a very different idea than I will be evaluated for how good a person I am and whether whether I'm being whether I will be loved or not depends on my qualities as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you think your 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 love is dependent on how what your qualities as a person are, then somebody pointing out that this is not so good is devastating because that means yeah. that the next step is that they might not love you anymore. If we all experience the world so differently, what does this all mean for empathy? Yeah, so empathy is a word that has been used in many different ways. And yeah. sometimes em- empathy means trying to see what your position is. And sometimes empathy is used in the, in the way of trying to feel what you feel. Um, I think empathy in the, in the way of trying to feel what you feel is, is not enough. I mean, I don't think you can, I don't think we should try to project our feelings on what we would feel. I mean, if I were you and my mother said I was fat, um, I would feel devastated. I would feel like a failure. Um, but that's not what you're going to project on me. So I, so I think that kind of empathy, looking at somebody, trying to imagine really uh, well what they, what you would feel in that situation, and then you know, and then uh, paying attention to that, that kind of empathy, I, I think, is not going to work. Um, Another kind of empathy I think is going to work, and I, I think throughout the conversation we have been trying that, is trying to to see what it means for people. Yeah. So what is at stake for people? Um, what is their narrative about what is happening? Um, do they think what is happening to them is good or bad? Do they expect good or bad consequences? What do they expect mm-hmm. from other people? What do they, how do they describe it themselves? Is that a a loaded term, or is that a, 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 a positive, effective term? I mean, those kind of things we can try to. And what I what I say in the book is, you can try to. You will never. I will never feel what you feel when somebody criticizes me. Um, but I may approximate that feeling when I understand all mm. the conditions. Um, and that's what we should be trying to do. We should try to be humble about what we know about other people and try to pick up on their narrative and conditions and their meaning making what other people in their environment think um mm. so it's going to be a it's there's no i don't think there's a shortcut but i do think you can get better at it yeah i think in an interview i heard with you you said you prefer resonating to empathy i think resonating is a better word i'm what not what do you mean by that when you say that what what do you mean by that resonating is um not feeling what you feel but sort of understanding what you feel given what i know about your values your environments 
um, mm-hmm. what you're trying to do, what it means for you if your mom says those things. That's resonating. Yeah. So resonating is not having the same feeling, but still understanding the feeling given that I were you. I yeah. mean, I, I had um, this friend who was, I taught um, Dutch for a while to an illiterate uh, Moroccan uh, woman in the Netherlands. And she she and I became really good friends in some way. Um, but of course, I, I was not going to tell her what I would do in her situation. Her husband was sometimes difficult and then she she couldn't, then he wouldn't let her go out and wouldn't mm-hmm. let her meet with, um, with strangers. And then she basically would soften him and until she could go out again. And, and it was always when her husband thought that, I think his honor was at stake. I would say now it's, it's been 30, over 30 years ago. But I could understand her. I really liked her. And I really could understand her, uh, the intricacies of her life and mm-hmm. how she navigated it. Even though I was my most feminist self at that point, yeah. you know, I didn't think I, nobody should tell me anything. I wasn't, I wasn't, I, at that point I thought I was never going to get married. Um, I wasn't going to submit myself to the patriarchy, but, <laughs> but it's possible to resonate given that a person is in those circumstances and that they, you know, that certain things are important for them. For example, that their husband feels valued and mm-hmm. feels like they're a good wife to their husbands. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the kind of resonating that, uh, that's the kind of relationship that I mean by resonating. Yeah, I, I like that because I, I, for, for me, I, as I hear you, share that experience it really highlights a key idea that that i think about a lot which is as we understand other people better we understand ourselves better you know so even though we may not have the same lives and the same triggers and the same cultural values as somebody else it's really exciting to explore it and understand it and often when we understand someone else and their family dynamics and and all the things that are going on there we we kind of reflect on our own lives i think so and i think it um lays bare how cultured our own emotions yeah. are right the anger about my husband being five minutes late for dinner i described that as an imaginary uh, story but really um comparing it to women who are accepting anything lays bare that I Mm. think I'm entitled to a certain respect that I don't think it is without um, it's obvious that I do the cooking and that he comes whenever he pleases I mean a lot of those things it's it it speaks to an entitlement that I feel Mm. it speaks to relationship expectations so I think it tells you something about yourself when you try to understand what uh, yeah intricacies are of other people's emotional lives. I've I've really come to see empathy more now, like less that I know what you're feeling, but uh-huh. I think this is how I wrote about it in my last, it was practice true empathy, which is not, I know how you feel, but I don't know how you feel, yeah. but I'm still here for you. Right. 
Yeah, I don't know what you feel. It's 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 called in the in the psych in the intercultural psychiatry. It's called um, not no. It's uh, cultural humility or not knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think it's. I mean, it's not just cultural humility. You can have it towards anybody in a different position, yeah. in a different body than you, yeah. basically. But but I think in a different. Culturally, it's even more important because the starting points are so different. Yeah. So apart from not taking offense when someone says thank you to you for cooking them dinner, what else has changed or shifted in your life since you started researching emotions and the impact culture plays on emotions? And after writing this book, you know, any other changes that you, you, you're able to share? I think a lot of changes. I when I um, I grew up in a in a Jewish, not Orthodox family, but there was pretty observant, um, not very religious, but very much. And I wanted out. I wanted my. I wanted to do what I felt like doing. Um, I didn't want to be forced in anything. And I've just come to recognize that as one way of being a way of being that can also hurt other people that uh, sacrifices stable relationships for excitement and new opportunities and new relationships but also creates vulnerabilities so i think what happened to me in since i and, and i don't know which part of it is aging but is very much that i think it's 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 one way of having a good, the way I try to do my life is one way of having a good life, but there are many others mm. and they all have costs. Um, and I think that about, about, you know, individual Western individualism in general, I think, you know, it's in, if you're doing well as an individual, it gives you a lot of liberty, but it also makes people much more vulnerable because if they don't do well individually, um, they're actually, there's not a network that takes care of them as much. Uh, we don't mm-hmm. take care of the elderly. You know, we uh, we don't take care, care of our depressed as well. Um, one of the things that we know is that first-time occurrence of depression is no different across cultures. But second-time uh, depression is actually more common in Western cultures. And I can only imagine that is that is because if you are depressed, your collective makes sure that there still is a scaffolding, mm-hmm. um, which is if you are depressed in individualist cultures, the scaffolding is gone. Um, so I think, you know, I think there are costs to every way of doing emotions and doing lives. And yeah. I'm much more, I guess... I'm much more of a, I mean, not in the extreme. I don't think people should kill other people. But but in in many of the everyday decisions and ways of doing relationships, I see many more shades, um, shades of doing them that yeah. are still really fine, that can lead to meaningful and productive lives. Yeah. I think this is one of the beautiful things that travel gives us, doesn't it? When we go to a different country and immerse ourselves in a completely different culture you you realize oh wow people live 
in harmony in very different ways. They have different ways of doing things, different values, different customs. But when you see it in the context of their culture, it all kind of makes sense, mm -hmm. which is, I think, one of the great gifts of travel for those people lucky enough to be able to travel and mm -hmm. kind of experience those things. Um, but actually, it's, it's been such a joy uh, talking to you. Um, I think you can see from my questions or observations, I should say, half the time, I've, I'm really fascinated by this entire topic. I think you've done such a brilliant job at putting it all together in between us. I really do. I think it's, uh, it's a book that can really help shift people's perspectives for the better. Um, just to finish off, we're living in a world at the moment where there appears to be a lot of division, a lot of intolerance, a lot of judgment about the way other peoples are living their lives. For me, I don't think it's very helpful. I don't think judging others, looking down on others, wishing things were other than the way that they often are. I don't think it's that helpful a lot of the time for our own personal well-being. Mm -hmm. To finish up this conversation, though, with a bit of hope, what would you say to people who say, you know, what would you say to people who are worried mm -hmm. and who look around them and say, you know, there's so much disharmony. Like people mm -hmm. aren't getting on. What are we going to do? Do you have any kind of final words of hope? Yeah, I think I, you know, it's hard. I, I don't think, first of all, that harmony is going to come from diminishing other groups. So I think it's important, important to, talk about your own needs and what you would like in the world without looking immediately at how other groups would interfere with that i mean it's i think you can only you can only hope to find harmony if everybody's needs are looked at maybe not fully taken care of but if we can see how they're compatible so i you know, I'm talking to myself as much as to many other people. I think we are very judgmental in this in this time and day about how people, how different groups are. And I would say that, you know, it's the hardest for me to be compassionate with um, with, conser with conservative um, values. And yet I think there is something to be learned from looking at what is at stake there. Um, you know what? What do conservative people fear? What? What is? Are, can we? Can we some somehow safeguard what is important for them, without denying other people? Um, you know the similar rights. Um, so is that hopeful? I don't know. We're we're far we're far from that. But I think in the in the communication, I think we should look at what we're able. Um, to do rather than what we're not able to do. And one of the things that has made me hopeful and not so hopeful is how many countries were able to accommodate, I don't know how many Ukraines coming in. I think, you know, that if we're able to accommodate so many people 
we should be able to do that for other people as well, right? We should be, we should be able to take other people's perspective as well, because that's really what we've done uh, for Ukraine, um, and look at what the needs are there. But yeah. that's I. You know, I don't know that I I'm, I I can't look into the future as but you, little. But as, you have hope. Uh, I sometimes <laughs> I try. Hope is a moral obligation. <laughs> we yeah. we try. I think you need to try to have hope and work on what people can do. And what people can do is trying to really resonate with other people and see what yeah. they can do from that perspective. Actually, I think you're doing great work. I think it's going to help people be less judgmental, more inclusive. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, do think about one thing that you can take away and start applying into your own life. Now, before you go, just wanted to let you know about Friday Five. It's my free weekly email containing five simple ideas to improve your health and happiness. In that email, I share exclusive insights that I do not share anywhere else, including health advice, how to manage your time better, interesting articles or videos that I've been consuming, and quotes that have caused me to stop and reflect. And I have to say, in a world of endless emails, it really is delightful that many of you tell me it is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving. So if that sounds like something you would like to receive each and every Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday 5. Now, if you are new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that I have written five books that have been bestsellers all over the world, covering all kinds of different topics, happiness, food, stress, sleep, behavior change and movement, weight loss, and so much more. So please do take a moment to check them out. They are all available as paperbacks, ebooks, and as audiobooks, which I am narrating. If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And please note that if you want to listen to this show without any adverts at all, that option is now available for a small monthly fee on Apple and on Android. All you have to do is click the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And always remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more.